0: hello and welcome to permission to be i'm your host becca epley joined as always by my co-host david roberts permission to be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true authentic selves we hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been are so honored to have with us Jay Mays III. He is an author, a poet, an educator based out of Seattle. He has recently released a book this past March called, And Then I Got Fired, One Trans Queer's Reflection on Grief, Unemployment, and Any Appropriate Jokes About Death. And that is actually his second published work. He has some exciting work coming up at the beginning of 2020 called Black Trans Prayer Book. So be on the lookout for that. Jane Mays, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: No, thank you for having me. So Mays, the first question that we typically ask everyone is kind of more of a fun one. And that is when your work inevitably grows in notoriety (laughs) and the capitalist machine that is Hollywood looks to appropriate your story (laughs) for monetary gain. And in order to do that and to to buy your life rights, they give you the (laughs) option of which they don't really do this. but. Imagine that they were to give you the option to speak into the casting of who would play J. the III in a biopic based on your work. Do you have any strong feelings or opinions about who that person or persons, if it's a multi-phase story, might be?
2: Um, so I don't know about the, if it's, if it was a multi-phase, I'm not sure in my spirit, but I'm a Taurus so that I'm a little bit controlling sure, sure. and so it would have to be me as far as play. <laughs> Never so that answer. The latest <laughs> part of my life it would have to be me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so the focus, of course, of our discussions have been talking with people about where they found permission or who gave them permission or if they gave themselves permission to be mm-hmm. who they are today. And to share some either segments or maybe your whole story Mm -hmm. and start off, can you tell us a little bit about where you really found or when you really found you were living your most authentic life?
2: So I think for me, when even when you say that piece about who gave me permission to be or all that kind of place. I think it's every black and brown trans person that has survived in spite of white supremacy, right? So that there's mm. so many different elders and ancestors that ensured that I can be here on this planet at this time. Yeah. And so I think once I started actually paying attention to a legacy of black and brown trans activism and leaders and spiritual healers, um, that's when I think I found my true
0: calling.
1: I kind of want to just jump right into the TED <laughs> Talk.
0: Okay. Inshallah. <laughs> <boy. So. Yeshua. laughs>
1: I'll fully admit, so I came into this blind. I've been out of town. Um, I knew we had the interview coming up. And so Becca sent me a link to your website. And so I watched, there was a, I believe there's a poetry video on there, which was excellent. And then I watched the TED Talk. And that TED Talk was like one of the best sermons that I've heard in a long time. And what I especially loved about it was when you got near the end of it, kind of about the 13, 14 minute mark, you kind of had a sequence of, of, next steps or application pieces. And the first one that really stuck with me um, was the second one uh, where you talked about accepting urgency and that has been that is uh, the, the notion of urgency has actually been one of the most eye-opening things for me as a, a straight white cisgender male uh, over the last few years as I've kind of begun to process, kind of what you, when you, you, we were talking a moment ago, what you said of, you know, kind of the way that, you know, Becca was talking about the underbelly of America and you, you know, pointed out that that's kind of what marginalized identities and marginalized communities have known for America's entire existence. And so, would you mind riffing on that notion of urgency a little bit? Because I thought that was really powerful from the talk.
2: I mean, really, I think that for a lot of, when I think especially about white folks, not even just white folks in different situations, I think the idea of whiteness and when people kind of buy into and, um, ascend into whiteness, it's also ascending into Mm -hmm. a set of values that is distance from humanity, right? Yeah. Distance from, um, like it's not a human response to see people suffering and to not have a, to reaction to it, to have an emotional reaction to it, to have a physical reaction to it. Um, that's just actually how we're hardwired. So something about when I think about even, um, the ways that so many people suffer at the state of the U.S., at the, within the U.S. and outside the U.S. Um, by our hands, the fact that so many people in power can look at that, so many people who profit off of whiteness can look at that and not immediately feel something, says to me a lot about people being able to um, exist in these places that they already believe are safe and already get to be safe, right? Whereas a lot of us, you know, when I think someone... I remember telling me, and, um I'm trying to think of what state I was in or where I was in, but I was doing a workshop on um, transness and racism and, and white supremacy. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, thank you so much for what you do. And this is a white cisgender mm-hmm. woman. And she said, you know, thank you so much for what you do. I couldn't do what you do. And I said, you think I want to do this? Like, I have <laughs> to do this, right? So because I'm not distant or far cry from the stuff that I'm talking about or that we talk about around homelessness, around joblessness, around physical violence that we experience as black and brown people, but especially as black and brown trans bodies.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. And so we often also get blamed when we are expressing our urgency, our anger, our frustration, or our sadness, or our grief, especially when it comes to people that have already decided for them that the world is safe and don't even want to look at us like human beings.
1: Mm-hmm. That resonates. It reminds me, I uh, was recently hanging out with uh, a, Gentleman who does um, uh, anti-racism, diversity, and inclusion work in uh, on like a consulting level, and he described uh, one of the most profound marks of privilege as the privilege to doubt, and so the privilege to doubt the experiences of marginalized bodies and marginalized identities. And so, you know, so the example he gave is you know would be a, a person of color talking about their experiences uh, with law enforcement, for example. You gave that example in your TED talk at the at the camp. And the burden of proof often for whiteness is far exceeding, you know what what the, the typical expectation could should be, you know, as opposed to just trusting the experience of someone who actually had that experience. And for, for me, I thought that was a that, that was a helpful illustration. I've never had to think about doubt through the lens of privilege in that way, and that's that's kind of where my head went as you were describing that.
2: Can I tell you a trivial pet peeve I have? In the scheme of the world, this is so small, but it makes me angry every time it happens. But so when you're talking about that, one of the smallest examples I see of that is on Facebook, when maybe a black or brown person will be like, oh, this thing enrages me or this thing happened and it's messed up. And then you'll see a white person post even as a white person, I agree with you. Have y'all you ever seen that? Yep. Or been, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh, yeah.
1: I'm sure I've probably yeah. said that at some point. point I'm just so. like, what is
2: that supposed to mean? Like, are we space aliens? Like, <laughs> right. As a human, as a being, as a being, again, who is connected to empathy, em- connected to justice, connected to the reality of the world, of the material world we're living in, people should understand that people don't deserve trauma, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and I'm going to go back to your TED Talk as well, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm going to quote you. Um, okay. But w- one of the things, a direct quote from what you said in talk, TED Talk was in the part about politeness, mm-hmm. that politeness is a tool used to hoard resources from targeted and vulnerable communities and blame them for their own oppression. Mm-hmm. Politeness, white people, politeness. I am a cis white female. For those of you who can't see mm-hmm. me or understand, <laughs> or it's in my face, but this is This is something that we really need to self-examine. It's nobody's job to point it out to us. We need to self-examine. And Jamie, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more just about the realities of our country and politeness.
2: Well, so even when you see uh, people who are talking about the concentration camps right now that are holding immigrants, right, and people who are (laughs) undocumented, and so you'll see people saying, oh, well, that's, you know, that's taking it too far, you know, like y'all are taking it too far when people protest, you know, and we'll talk about, oh, well, you know, they shouldn't be shutting down the street or they shouldn't be doing this thing or they shouldn't, right? So again, that's people that have already under the assumption that if we play along with the system that is designed to kill some of us, that somehow things will be okay. Right. And so I always ask people, like, what are you trying to hold on to when you're doing that? Right. So knowing that when I think about even in a lot of social justice movements. So, David, you talked about even when I think about diversity and equity work, a lot of that work, like even when we think about what does it mean to have those conversations at the corporate level, at the nonprofit level, Often that's usually beholden to um, creating these polite conversations (laughs) in which people will come out of it and feel really good about themselves, right? Or Mm -hmm. staff will feel really good about themselves. Not usually all the staff, but white staff (laughs) usually come out of it. Able-bodied staff will feel good coming out of it. Um, Cisgender and heterosexual people will feel good coming out of it. but that usually that is um, in direct opposition to people who are saying they actually need quick change, right? Or quick things to move, right? Um, And so politeness kind of usually gums up the works because polite, very much like when I think about just even the root of uh, the word civility and the ways that people kind of operate under this system, that creating a system of politeness also proved to uh, working class people, uh, people in subservience, Mm -hmm. how um, superior the upper class was supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're playing this role, about what lightness is supposed yeah. to is somehow uh, a mark of integrity. Mm-hmm. It's usually a mark that you think oh. that people are suffering actually deserve that, right? Because how could you be mm-hmm. suffering yeah. and be calm? Right. Like that doesn't make sense. Right. How can you be without mm-hmm. food um, and not experience the emotional highs and lows that go along with it? How can you be without a home and not experience the highs and lows? How can you be at risk of losing your job and not be dealing with the rational and reasonable emotional responses to that as a human off this mm-hmm. earth? Right? right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, so one of the, one of the ways that we've kind of been publicly or out loud wrestling with this at the church that Beck and I are a part of is is shifting our language to kind of say, all right, it's not that the system is broken because the system's actually working precisely as intended. This is the system that was designed and it's doing what it's exactly. supposed to do. The system is fundamentally bad and needs to be kind of torn down completely. And that might sound like semantics to some, but that's a fundamental difference. If the system's just broken then we can reform it. And reform takes time. And, you know, if we're just patient enough, then eventually it'll get better. And we can just you know, and so we'll just uphold the status quo. We'll just slowly make it a little more inclusive. But it still takes for granted a a system that it exploits people at its core. And so that's that's a Mm -hmm. little bit, correct me if I'm wrong, please, but that's Mm -hmm. a little bit what I hear you talking about, like like going back to the urgency thing and the way that politeness works to essentially pump the brakes on the urgency that marginalized voices and bodies quite understandably would feel and kind of, uh, you know, as opposed to, you get what I'm saying, I think.
2: Yeah, no, and there's a few things that are kind of push, pulling around in my head when you're saying that. So one of the things that you were talking about, the reform takes time. So even, Mm -hmm. even if I did believe in reforming of the system, right? So that's not what I believe, but let's say I am someone that believes in reforming of the system, right? And people push that piece consistently around, oh, it takes time, it takes whatever. When we're watching this current administration move, did it take them time? No. No. And they're operating with the same system. It did not take them time. It only takes time if you still want to be beholden Mm. to systems of power, Mm. right, to the people in power, and you still want to be friends with everyone, even with the people that are causing harm. Then it takes time. If you're actually prioritizing the people that are most targeted, regardless of whether you believe in reforming the system or taking the system down, guess what? Mm. It doesn't take time, Mm -hmm. right? That can be an instantaneous thing, Mm -hmm. right? There was another thing you said that I'm like, even that for some people, it's semantics. I think for, again, when you're talking about people who are already safe, Mm -hmm. it's all semantics, right? People want to have conversations, again, that make them feel good, that make Mm -hmm. them feel smart. You know, I remember having a conversation, I was doing a training, I think it was on uh, Solidarity or something like that. And I took, it was a four hour training. I was taking the first like 20 minutes or so to talk about definitions and other sort of things and get people on the, just a basic level of understanding, right? happens, trainings, all over the world. That's what happens, Mm -hmm. right? People need to have language. That's it, right? And this person came up to me during one of the breaks and was like, oh, you know, I think everybody knows all these um, definitions, blah, 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 X, Y, Z. Mind you, I'm sitting here in the Pacific Northwest Mm -hmm. defining things like Mm anti-Blackness, right? Mm -hmm. Being the only Black person in the room, aside from a person I invited. (laughs) I was like, and you, I said... I don't doubt that you've heard the words before. I do doubt that you've actually internalized their meaning and how to make it make sense Mm -hmm. in the physical world. I do doubt that, right? And so even when we're coming into these places, people asking themselves, like, how do your goals for doing justice work differ Mm -hmm. from people directly impacted? That's a good
1: Um, question. So so let's keep building off that because, you know, back in your TED Talk, you know, so you talked about urgency. You talked about the deferral of leadership, which I feel like we've danced around a little bit in some of these other questions that we've talked about so far alluded to it when we've talked about the the trusting the experiences, yeah. of the people have actually had the experiences as opposed to assuming that you can mm-hmm. be an outside observer and, and have some level of expertise on the lived experience of someone else. But right. we can get more explicit about that real quick first. Right.
2: And honestly, some of us are outside observers and yet we do have expertise only because we're actually beholden sure. to all these systems. Right. So it's like, I can't, exist. and I'm saying that because like, I think, um, you know, White folks, especially, I'm talking about the system of white supremacy most because that's the one that's I think is so connected to patriarchy, yeah. so connected yeah. to the class and peace, and so connected to what trans antagonism started like on this continent, mm-hmm. and queer antagonism, right? Yeah. yeah. But so with that, I think a lot of times white folks have a hard time understanding mm-hmm. that they— are not experts on everything, right? So they have a hard time. We don't talk about the empathy gap, right? Uh, that a lot of times, mm-hmm. when we're uh, like, I tell people, just as my puppy is trying to speak to me, I speak to my puppy every day. She runs where we go on walks, um, but at some point, as the adult person <laughs> and yeah. as human person, I decide when we stop. We assume often that because we're in the same rooms. Having conversations with each other that everyone sees everybody as mm-hmm. human, and that's certainly not the case, right? Yeah. And that we often are distrusting of Black and Brown folks of being yeah. able to properly perceive the world around us, yeah. even though, again, we have been the mm-hmm. conscious observers <laughs> the entire mm-hmm. time, right? Um, yeah. In order to get by and do what we need to do, yeah. And so, deferring of leadership goes, in my mind, along with a word that's mm-hmm. come up a few times, but this even this word of inclusion, right? There's mm-hmm. a activist named Erin Lang out of New York City, originally from Ohio. Uh, She's a Black trans woman who does a lot of different, brilliant work Mm -hmm. in the world, but she always says uh, inclusion is not the goal, right? And so to me, what also is clear that when we're talking about deferring leadership, people have to also understand the uh, mm-hmm. the intellectual capacity of black and brown people, which, you know, there are studies mm-hmm. out that talk about people who are mm-hmm. uh, on the left and the right are just as racist, right? Just as invested yeah. in white people being in yeah. charge, yeah. just as invested in, in perpetuating yeah. the mythos that black and brown people are somehow not capable of taking care of ourselves, right? So a deferral of leadership needs to happen in to one, so that we're at least in a place to be able to make decisions, right? I don't care what kind of organization right. or space or cityscape, whatever people are in, you know, in the United States, there's a, there's a massive issue around white supremacy. There also has to be a place in which we also sometimes have the final word, right, on things, right? Yes. And so one of the biggest fears I think that white, many white folks have when they hear people talking about justice issues is that they're like, oh, does that mean I can't have my job anymore? Does that mean that um, I can't live in this neighborhood anymore? Does that mean I can't do this? Da-da? And the mm-hmm. reality is that in some cases, yeah, actually, yeah. that means <laughs> some people uh, and many people are actually holding up the movement forward, right? Because they believe, again, that everything has to take time mm-hmm. so that they can be beholden to and nice to people that cause tons of harm.
0: Uh, makes my blood boil. <laughs> Okay. My, ah, uh, uh, that's that perspective of everything has to take time. I mm. White people were sitting in privilege and the whole thing that it takes time. We've been a nation that has existed because we ran away and came over and took somebody else's land. And then we brought other people, people, we brought people mm-hmm. from other continents to be indentured. Slaves and servants. We've had our time. We didn't need to have time to begin with. The system was broken when it was created, and so now it just needs a clean slate. Sorry, tangent.
1: <laughs> no, you're good. Yeah, was it Aaron Lang? Is that the? Yeah, is Aaron that, Lang. Can we riff a little bit on? Sorry, I'm I'm using the word riff very liberally. Um, <laughs> you're loving that. Uh, word. I, I, I need uh, to find a synonym. Um, can we talk about that idea that inclusion? Is not the goal. I think there's a lot there yeah. that because I think I think I think the default, you know, like woke, liberal, white, mm-hmm. progressive, you know, fill in your your adjective assumption is inclusion's the goal. Yeah, and so I think that could be useful to unpack for people.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, when I hear the word inclusion, I hear people disappearing into somebody else's dream, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'm showing up into an institution um, in which they didn't think about black folks, they didn't think about trans folks, they didn't think about certainly not black and brown trans folks, um, since its inception, this is like a hundred years old institution, right? So I'm coming into a culture and a space that has no space, has no room for me, mm-hmm. right? And so it's a place that sets me up for failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the institution to still be again tied into these other sort of ways of being that are harmful and not even to deconstruct what parts of the ways that they operate as being uh, problematic right mm. instead of and and we do these things where we will pour into all of our resources like when i think about um and this is you know just on a real tip right every time something comes up with lgbtq folks in the world or in the in the us um, someone be like oh this is why we need to donate to places like the hrc mm-hmm. right so <laughs> A place that consistently threw trans people under the bus, has thrown Black and Brown people under the bus, but is a white institution that largely has the most resources already and so it has more brand power, right? And people want to pour into that instead of all the Black and Brown and trans-run organizations that exist all mm-hmm. over the U.S., right? And the world, right? Because somehow, in trying to or attempting to have this continued conversation about inclusion in which most people are actually not even invested in that base level, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, somehow is more profitable to people and more beneficial to people invested in white supremacy than actually supporting people who are on the ground and actually know what's happening. Mm. You know? So things like that, right? I consistently see resources being driven out of targeted communities because people and especially white folks will consistently trust their own people to do the best work mm-hmm. even if they're failing at it. Even if they uh, mess it up. Even if they fucking up to high heavens, but they will still trust white people who are consistently shitting on people mm, versus yeah. the actual people themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a uh I was trying to find what you're saying that a quote. Um there's a a theologian named Lynn Tonstad. Uh she wrote a about queer theology and another um, kind of about the Trinity. It's called God Indifference. And she she has a line in there, which I'm going to butcher because I couldn't find the quote, <laughs> that basically says something to the effect of like willed offering or kind of willed bestowal of a privilege that's already held by oneself. You, you know, kind of this idea of inclusion basically like, yeah, join us, so to speak. You know, we're going to give you the benefits of what we already have. Isn't actually liberating anyone. It's just upholding the status quo. Right, and it sounds much more eloquent when she says it. But, <laughs> but, but no, I think I, I think it's the idea that often, to your point, you know, I think white supremacy and whiteness more broadly is kind of the the apt or the most baseline example. But you could fill in the blank, I think, with any mm-hmm. any power dynamic, any any situation where there's a group that uh, has inherent power or privilege advantages over another. That it often doesn't even occur in that instance to. It's taken for granted that. uh, How did you say it? Inviting into someone's own dreams or something? I thought that was.
2: Disappearing into someone else's
1: dreams? Yeah, that's great language. Mm. That's great language. I'm done riffing.
2: (laughs) <laughs> yes. And then the other piece you were talking about, so when we talk about even just giving up resources, you know, I think when we actually think about, so just as I was giving that example of like when a hate crime against LGBTQ folks, that doesn't matter who in the LGBTQ community happens to in the U.S., but people be like, donate to this organization, right? So I'll take an example of when there's an anti-trans murder in the U.S., right? Mm. When there's an anti-LGBTQ murder, period, in the U.S., about, what is it, 77% is a black mm-hmm. trans woman right Mm -hmm. and so thinking about then and yet when i look at the boardrooms of these organizations right when i look at who's given power when i think about who's um on the executive team right all that different stuff it tends to be white cisgender people right who don't even Mm -hmm. live in the same neighborhoods right who don't even have this again who are distrustful of people who are actually experiencing the violence right and so i've never seen a room get cleared more quickly (laughs) than when Mm -hmm. i'm in a group of uh people who perceive themselves to be the good, white, liberal, progressive, XYZ, XYZ people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when you bring up the word reparations, mm-hmm. when you bring up uh, actual money, like I'll have, uh, so even in this process of doing this work around the Black Trans Prayer Book, right? we're creating healing tools specifically for people who are targeted, for people who are actually experiencing mm-hmm. tons of violence on a regular basis. Yeah. You know? um, and when I talked to a group of folks in a room about it, White folks usually come up and, again, do the same thing of like, oh, they give me a hug and say like, thank you for doing what yeah. you do. I could never do what you It's like, again, <laughs> it's not about that. And did you hear the part where we, uh, mm-hmm. like, there's already a wealth gap around race, right? It's exponentially yeah. higher, but we talk about trans folks, right? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Um, you know, typically in the U.S., I think in 2016, the median access to wealth for a white family was somewhere around, a hundred and forty-four thousand mm-hmm. dollars. For a Latinx family that same year, it was about fourteen thousand dollars. And for mm-hmm. a non Latinx black family, it was eleven thousand dollars. And that's um mm-hmm. not and that's uh of homes that have multiple parents, right? So that's not even talking about the breakdowns uh when you get into how do black and brown single people live or like what's that? You know, that's usually mm-hmm. a negative access to wealth, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so people will, again, have these really wonderful places of conversation, but refuse to believe mm-hmm. someone on GoFundMe who says, you know, I lost my job for speaking out about racism, or I lost my space of living because I'm trans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people live in such varied conditions that they don't deserve because of the systems we live in. And in order to rectify that, people
1: have to be willing to give up
2: resources. So
1: piggybacking off that, like, can we talk about sort of the tension that I feel like exists between solutions that operate like within the given system and, and kind of maybe more revolutionary ideas that would seek to operate outside of or tear down the existing system. So you brought up GoFundMe, for example, you know, so on one hand, it's like, you know, it's ridiculous that GoFundMe has kind of become this source of survival and sustainability, whether we're talking about a healthcare situation or um, someone from a marginalized community uh, losing work or or what have you. And I think the same thing you can can look at, you know, you know, you were talking about nonprofits earlier and, you know, there'll be a a murder Mm -hmm. in the LGBTQ community. A bunch of people then donate to some nonprofit. And the reality is that nonprofit. A
2: million dollar nonprofit. Yeah. And it's being, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so that nonprofit's being funded by some, Billion dollar company with uh-huh. you know with, with a, with a homogenous board, and I
0: was gonna say with a cis white male on the board, yeah.
1: And so, what does it look like? Have you found the tension between sort of living a sustainable life of kind of resistance within the system while also creating avenues and pathways to genuinely? Uh, Tear down the system and and, and kind of having that revolutionary impulse to, to, you know, burn it down, start a new work outside the system, et cetera. Does does the question make sense?
2: The question makes sense. I'm trying to think about um, (laughs) how hopeful am I as a person. Uh, So (laughs) it depends on the day, maybe. Uh, yeah, question mark possibly. <laughs>
1: <that my> <laughs> so, so just to give you some context, yeah. like I, I like I struggle with this in my own role at the Church Beck and I are part of because right. so many of the solutions that I feel like I can offer people is like go go tutor at this school or go mm-hmm. volunteer with this nonprofit and in a vacuum or within the within the scope or the context of the status quo these organizations aren't necessarily doing bad things and I'm sure on some level someone is being helped. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I suspect that on some level someone's being helped in some way, mm-hmm. but for the most part it, you know, people walk away, you know, people in power and people in privilege walk away feeling good about themselves like they did something. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing about the system has changed. The status quo is completely upheld mm-hmm. and you know, and then people are then free to go about their business kind of ambivalent at best, oblivious at worst of, kind of what's really going on. And so it's like, well, do we keep doing that? Do we stop? I mean, my impulse is to stop. And then, but then having that sometimes having that prophetic imagination to reorient people to, to action, to things that they can do outside of the constraints of the system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the learning curve is high there, or at least is for me. And so,
2: I mean, y'all are in, you said you're in Charlotte, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of badass, amazing organizers that are black and brown, trans and queer people in charlotte right that do all kinds of work especially mm-hmm. when we're talking about mm-hmm. north carolina activism i think about the end um end cash bail group mm-hmm. so folks that were doing all that kind of work um the mm-hmm. uh, black mama bailout that happens you know um over mother's mm-hmm. day things like that um in which people are doing actions and saying like yo we need money like when i think about organizations that are getting pools of money together to um donate to uh uh pay the bail of folks who are currently incarcerated for being undocumented, right? All that different kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Or lawyers, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? So I think yeah. that what people often want to do in terms of volunteer work is again, stuff that's like, Oh, like this person is going to look at me and feel connected to me and know that I am a smart, wonderful person. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. kind of relationship has to stop because that is not a realistic relationship. And it teaches people that the only saviors that they can have are white people. Right. Um, And so instead of white people Mm -hmm. reinventing the wheel, I would say they need to actually trust the organizers again on the ground, whether or not they got an LLC, whether or not they got a 501c3, whether or not they got an office building, all that kind of stuff, but that you see some really um, amazing work coming out of people that $10 could save somebody's life, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have never been in that situation. I'm telling y'all right now, there's someone right right now whose $10 could change their entire situation, Right. And so we have to be willing again to um, pour into those folks that are connected, that are doing that stuff, um, or even just like you could go on to GoFundMe right now and look up hashtag TGNC fund and believe people and say mm-hmm. that they're in struggle. Right. You can mm-hmm. give them $5 right now. Right. And let it hit their account. Right. So it doesn't even have to be that um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: we're consistently doing these. Uh, uh, you know, it doesn't have to take 12 million years, or 12 million light years to do this, this thing. It's something very simple. And that that shift of resources, I think changes so
0: much for people.
1: Mm, Well said.
0: Yes. We, we as white people need to let go, Mm -hmm. I believe of this control of the perspective of, I have to know, I have to know for sure. I need this guarantee. We need to trust humanity and let, um, when we give, Don't think about, I want to make sure it does the right thing because that's only serving us. Mm -hmm. That's only serving us. If I'm making sure my money's doing the quote, air quotes, the right thing, it doesn't matter that 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 money that's doing the right thing. I need to know that for me, it has nothing to do where where my actual resources are going. Because if you give $10 to a person and you try to say, you need to spend it on X, Y, Z, and the person's like, no, that's not what I need. You don't know my story. You don't know my situation. You don't know my life. We have, as human beings, we have to release that judgment energy. Well, we have, we really have. I mean, and I, I'm not saying judge, I mean, definitely on the racial perspective, but I'm specifically speaking about the judgment of how, what others do with their funds, because I believe that hinders us from being, it hinders those of us who choose to judge from giving freely. I think more people need to admit that they are judging <laughs> like, yeah. more people need to, because like, even when
2: you talk about your money doing the right thing or whatever, if you're only giving to white nonprofits or nonprofits run by mostly white people, as, when I'm talking about the executive level, cause usually on the ground, like as far as the ground level, yeah. lower level employees usually are black and Brown people and many different nonprofits. Yeah. But what I'm talking about, so the executive directors, the executive boards, all that kind of stuff, are primarily white, I guarantee you money is not doing what you think it's doing in your spirit, right? So, so it's already not doing the right way. Right? Give an opportunity to do something better, right? To do more. And to actually yeah. uh, be shifting those those kinds of paradigms. Um, yeah, because what I'm thinking about, so even when you talk about the kind of judgment people have about whether or not people will use it for the right thing or all that kind of stuff, I think a lot about when I hear people judging people like, oh, if I give them this money and there's no way for me to track it, what if they use it on... Uh, you know that old adage about people like, what if this person uses it on substances? What if this person uses it for this kind of thing? What if I mm-hmm. I donated for right. a sleeping bag and right. they decide to use it for their rent money? Like that's not, what, you know. Um, but trusting that again, we know what we need, mm-hmm. right? Um, and getting to a place where you where people where black and brown people are not infantilized so much that we're not um we're not capable, right?
1: And would you say, kind of in that same spirit, like sometimes the complaints is like people it's almost like a form of whataboutism like they'll say well you know well the well, you know well why does the poor person have uh an iphone or they'll, they'll, or or you know when it comes to you know questions about like uh medical access and and contraceptives and stuff like that you, you know well they should have just made better decisions if they couldn't afford birth control you, you know things like that and it's it, it kind of becomes this uh, yeah, i mean it, it's a manifestation of yeah. some sort of class hierarchy that says only the rich are allowed to enjoy certain we we call them luxuries but 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 we treat them as as right. kind of just base necessities, kind of a given taken for granted thing <laughs>
0: um,
1: yeah yeah I feel like it's the same it's kind of the same insidious mentality that says you know that that, that says only only the affluence uh, which typically means only the only the white um, are are allowed to uncritically you know, right. upgrade their iPhone every six months, you know, cetera, are people upgrading
2: their iPhones every six months?
1: I don't know. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I've had two so, iPhones no, my entire life. Uh, yeah. So um,
2: yeah, and still that. And so even in that, um, let's use that as an example, even not just the upgrading of it, but so I live in, you know, the magical land of Seattle, right? So mm-hmm. the magical land of Seattle, which is an overwhelmingly white city, right? But says that they are aggressive If you ask anyone on the street right now in Seattle, Describe Seattle. They would say, "Oh, it's very progressive. Right? It's very liberal. It's all this different stuff." Um, yet they consistently push out black and brown mm-hmm. people. They are a white city on a brown continent, right? Um, they're very tech mm-hmm. industry heavy mm-hmm. uh, in a system in which many people that mine the very materials to put in these cell phones mm-hmm. and in these computers and all this stuff is very damaging to those folks. Is like is physically dangerous, right? Um, and yet again, on paper would say that they're very progressive. It's like you're not actually invested in people's lives, right? But you can say that mm-hmm. it is decisions about where you put your money. I think about how environmental if you also go around Seattle, it's one of the cleanest cities I've ever been in, in my lifetime, right? Um, and yet, we also help to support some of the companies that make the most pollution around the entire world, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's very, so I always want people to think about are your values what you think they are, right? So where are your actual values sort of lining up?
1: Yeah, it reminds me, so you mentioned earlier, you know, talking about clearing a room quickly and the, the rooms that clear the quickest are are the ones full of self-professed, liberal or progressive white people. You know, we've run mm-hmm. into this at, at, our, at our own church. Um, you know, the, the way I think we've said it is, you know, uh self-proclaimed woke progressive Mm -hmm. people um don't like to find out that they're in fact not right and i think the way that that uh often plays out kind of to to what you just mentioned is taking seriously intent versus consequence Mm -hmm. or intent versus effect and you know the way that you know so often even when people are like apologizing for for harm done you know it's like well you know I'm sorry that that was your experience. It wasn't my intent or, you know, you know, so often apologies from even progressive folks are, they hide behind good intentions and and your Seattle example I thought was, yeah, was apt because, you know, you have, you have a self-professed liberal city, liberal community that thinks they're doing good, but they're not critically examining Uh, the implications of their values
2: and that uh, so when you're thinking about even folks thinking about their intent, they're also working really hard to protect white innocence, right? right? And so the question mm-hmm. people have to wrestle with is in what ways during my day, and not just white people have to ask themselves this, but for all people that live under a system of white supremacy, how do we consistently go out of our way to protect white innocence at all costs, right? And we assume that white people are just, mm-hmm. oh, they don't know when they're doing bad. You know, we gotta, so how, we infantilize black and brown people saying that they can't, um, they can't function on their own, but then we tell white folks that they can't do wrong, right? right. And if wrong that they do is accidental, right? Because mm-hmm. again, it gets into this place of white people being inherently good, right? Everybody else being questionable, unsure, and shaky yeah. on their on their steps, right, and on their stuff, right. But white people being this kind of group of folks that we need to pour more resources into educating them instead of actually helping people survive. I,
1: I feel like you see that the way the media uh, refuses to say the word racist. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, or, or like Donald Trump right. uh, said a racist thing, but he's mm-hmm. not a racist or Donald Trump or whoever. I mean, lately it's Trump, but, you know, he, he, you know, invoked, mm-hmm. you know, had racially charged comments, like, but but just completely incapable of just naming something mm-hmm. as racist. They even changed, I think they recently changed the Associated Press, like guidelines for that. And yet still headline after headline yeah. after headline, after headline is, is, is that framing.
2: Oh, no, I mean. Because they're friends with people who say stuff like that, right? So, like, they're addicted, right? So people love to be, uh, white folks especially love to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm just hoping yeah. to change them or change their mind or do these things. It's like, so you'd rather do that? <laughs> you'd rather do that than actually worry about people actually dealing with the stuff, right? Um, and, like, I'll get people that will say, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, we have this one uh, white person who keeps doing this thing that's, you know, they think is really toxic to the black and brown folks and XYZ. i Z. I'm like, but you're also that toxic white person, Right. Because you're not worried about how the black and brown folks that have to deal with this person at your organization, at your congregation, at your space, mm-hmm. how they're feeling. You're worried about how do we teach this white person not to be such a horrible
0: person. But mm-hmm. maybe, so it's still centering mm-hmm. the whiteness. Yeah, like maybe yep, they're a horrible yep, person. Yep. One of the big areas of what exactly you're talking about is the church <laughs> um, the white we church the white, you know like we and then yeah, yes. you went you I mean that was just excellent about how oh, I love that point that you I'm just gonna regurgitate what you just said probably not as well but the whole point of like we're focusing on that white person in the church who has an issue with our six black people in our white church you know what I'm saying and so and yeah. and let me say it again Six black people out of, you know, 500. So again, Mm -hmm. we're focusing on the white people and man, there's so much time and thought that goes into that one instance. And it just, it makes me really ponder how much energy we pour into that. And when we could just pour our energies in a different, into the marginalized communities and Really, I, I really think part of that is we need to stop being the white saviors and look at our checkbooks and start putting and boosting people of color platforms, mm-hmm. trans platforms, Mar- Latinx, mm-hmm. all the platforms. That's we as white people, that's just what we need to do. Like you were saying mm-hmm. earlier with the GoFundMe. If you've got $5, go to the GoFundMe page, you can find somebody. Like, it's just like, sir. You know,
2: search undocumented, search TGNC funds, search black, search like all these search, um, whatever, right? Search POC, whatever, right? But there are people you can find really quickly that need that resource,
0: right? That need that basic, basic little level of support. Yeah. And this thought keeps coming to mind too in regards to that. And just, I think as human beings, we have to step out from living in a dualistic perspective. It's either right or it's wrong, or it's this or it's that that we have to be as humans as white humans we have to let go and look away from the guaranteed we want guaranteed results and it doesn't you don't need guarantee where your money's going you just need to give does that make sense it makes sense
2: on a level in which people are actually clear what their real intentions and motivations are
0: mm, okay. i think most white folks are actually not
2: not Clear about what their intentions are. That's a good point. Yeah, on paper, they're like, oh, I want to help people. We're all on paper on this. It's like, you know, when someone that you believe in needs help, you usually don't have to go through that many barriers, right? Yeah. You not go through that much thought process. So there's something mm-hmm. stopping you, right? right? Um, I had this woman, and this is, you know, uh, so she was uh I think she was probably about 72, 73. And she was like, she was at a uh a sermon I was giving one day, and you know, and so afterwards, she was speaking, to, so afterwards, after I spoke at a mostly white church, there was probably about 50 mm-hmm. white people lined up to tell me about how great they were, about like what they've been doing, the black and brown people, it was just the weirdest, <laughs> oh,
0: I would say yeah. it was like
2: the only experience, I've <laughs> that, but I've experienced that a lot where I'm just like, I don't really know, I don't, um, so sometimes I limit like who I talk to after church the Um But so, um, you know, and she came up to me and she was talking and she said, you know, it's just so hard to know when to act or how to act. You know, i just, you know, She basically to the fact she's never felt comfortable acting on issues of racism and white supremacy. I'm just like, well, you know, no shade, but like, when are you expecting to get this done? Right? Like you're like, no, no shade, but she's literally in her seventies and still waiting for this moment. I was like, did you ever think that you missed a lot of moments between now and then? Like, were you actually invested in that or did you want to wake up and see yourself as a great person? Right? that you were proud of. And me telling you that you are okay with white supremacy mm-hmm. and you are okay with racism is somehow counterproductive to the narrative in which you are the hero of your own story.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: So Jamie, I don't want to miss an opportunity mm-hmm. to let you talk a little bit about the black trans prayer book that's coming okay. out. Uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us, you know, a little bit more about that project. Okay. Uh, I believe he says coming out in January. Uh, so Black Trans Trans Book, what's it going to look like?
2: Yeah, so the Black Trans Prayer Book is going to be out January 15th. That's where we're crossing all of our fingers and our toes and all our Mm -hmm. appendages. So please do that if you're listening in. (laughs) Um, And so uh, what it is, it's a collection of texts from at least 20 Black Trans folks from all around the U.S. and elsewhere. And it's about reclaiming Mm -hmm. a Black Trans theology, right? And so often when we see theologies mm-hmm. of transness, they're still very mm-hmm. steeped in white supremacy and whiteness, right? Mm-hmm. We see theologies about Black liberation that usually often leave out Black trans and queer bodies. Mm-hmm. And so we're saying that, you know, since the beginning of colonization, right? right. Um, and before that, we've known that there are beings in spirit that to be a Black trans person... Means to be a spiritual entity because you are existing in a world that tells you not to. Like you are,
0: mm-hmm.
2: we believe there is no one more spiritual than Black and Brown trans people that have, you know, created themselves out of nothingness. Like where you had no example, and yet you're here, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so this text is going to be one of healing for those that mm-hmm. uh, that are Black trans people, and also it's going to be a tool to add to the canon for people that want to have responsible yeah. theologies that deconstruct white supremacy and mm-hmm. understand that relationship. To trans antagonism.
1: Oh. Excellent. Is it available for pre order yet, or is that still pending? It's
2: not available for pre order pre order yet, but it will be available for pre order by December. So I'm like, because me and my my colleague okay. Lady Dame Figaro, with D, sometimes we be arguing about time. And so I'm just going to fire her. It's going to be available <laughs> December <laughs> for
1: pre order. All right. So there's one more question. We and we used to say that we asked this question. To everyone, but I think we've missed it a few times. I think I can't say that anymore. But uh, but a question that I like to end with is: our audience is often coming from a place where the notion of salvation, the, the word salvation, had some pretty pretty specific meaning. Um, you know, kind of coming out of an evangelical white context, it's very escapist, kind of post mortem existence, so on and so forth. Have very little to say to. Um, the lived realities of people here and now. And what's been helpful and powerful is to allow some of the different diverse voices that we've had on the podcast to, if they have a category for it, to reclaim or redefine, redeem, what have you, the word salvation, give a completely different take that's alien or foreign uh, to, to probably what uh, most of the people listening grew up with. So if it's a, if it's a word that has any meaning for you uh, at this point in your work, in your life, um, what would the word salvation mean to you?
2: Well, I know I said this on the TED Talk. I don't know if I said this here today, but so I come from a Muslim and Christian background. Um, Mm -hmm. When I think about salvation, I don't know that I can give a different definition for everyone. What I will say is you cannot get to salvation without black trans people. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So that, mm-hmm. you know, we talk a lot about in face spaces, you know, that who we are, it's definitely how we treat the most targeted, right? Like that's just mm-hmm. it is what it is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so when we have theologies that cause people to be homeless, we have theologies that cause people to be beaten in the streets. If I can hear the same thing from someone in a pulpit that I can hear from someone beating out the brains of someone that uh, comes to my community, right? Something is wrong with that theology. Mm-hmm. If I can hear uh, theology from people that does not cause them to actually act, but to just to think of themselves as nice people, that is not a useful theology. Mm -hmm. And so salvation to me is transforming our theology into an active practice of lived reality and being honest about
0: the world we are currently living in. Mm -hmm.
1: Wonderful. Beautiful.
0: Jamie, thank you so much for being willing to spend time with us and pour through your heart, I should say. can you share with everybody how they can get in contact with you via social media, mm-hmm. your talks, all of those amazing offerings?
2: Yeah, and so uh, yeah, so I guess just want to say again, so to both you, Becca, and David, thank you so much for having me today. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I've appreciated this conversation. Um, my website that people can reach me at is www.jamesathird.com. So that's spelled letter J, M a s e i i dot com you can hit me up on the contact page there if you're on to instagram i'm pretty obsessed with the instagram so you can follow me <laughs> at uh at j mace the third so at j mace i i mm-hmm. i um so j m a s e i i i, and uh, you can also follow me there so yeah, and you can also grab a copy of my books, my current book, and then I got fired. One Transcripts reflections on grief, unemployment, and Appropriate jokes about death. Um, either through my link on Instagram or through my website, so you can do those as well as mm-hmm.
1: other
0: online, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, mm-hmm. and a few other places. Awesome. and other places on awesome. So, audience, if you're looking for an immediate place to start, J. Mason's platform is one of those places. You can bring. Him in to speak. You can order thirty books of his latest release and sit around and have a discussion <laughs> about it, and then bring him in and t- you can learn how your whiteness has translated that. And um, <laughs> that that's where we start. We as the white community don't need to be speaking. We need to let voices be heard. So thank you, Jay Mays, again. <laughs> Thank you. Um in the audience. I've had a trouble with Jay Mace's name. I keep wanting to shorten it to Jay, and that is not it. Um so I will own my got this
2: beautiful name from my ancestors, so we gotta use the full thing, Jamie. Oh,
0: oh my goodness, let's honor the ancestors. I'm serious. I'm about honoring the universe and I do not know what was my little white brain. Um, so thank you, Jay Mace. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Eppley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, We are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests and the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.